Jordan and Gretzky, Serena and Ruth Remembering great ones is easy to do But what about the no names who spent their whole lives Long stepping footballs and catching sack flies They're guys, remember that guy some guys now the second pick will be made by the charlotte hornets and that means that the number one pick in the three nba draft goes to remember that guy the show where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present hey there folks it's me james one of your hosts and with the top pick bit of a swerve here i'm actually going to take my co-host Diaz is going to slide right on in which means the team picking at number two is going to have the chance to take a transcendent talent, and we actually have that talent with us right now, folks. Please introduce yourself. So it's not actually Victor Wimbanyama. It's me, Brian Windhorse. You know, ESPN leased me out to RTG to also talk to Victor in Paris, but they're all asleep right now, so it's just me sitting around. But he's real excited to go to the Spurs. Why would the Spurs win the lottery? Very curious. Very strange. Very strange. It's because Wayne Yama is going to be a Hall of Famer. So then they could say, we've had the first pick three times. Each time we took a big man who made the Hall of Fame. If I had a nickel for every time the Spurs executed a perfect one-year tank job when there was a transcendent big man to be taken with the number one overall pick and then won the lottery, I would have three nickels. God damn it. (laughs) Yeah, just one last thing on that topic. Somebody pointed out, because I believe it's now seven times that the Spurs have been the lottery. And three times that they have won it. So there is a sizable percentage of NBA basketball players who have a worse shooting percentage from the field than the Spurs do at winning the lottery. Most, I would say. That's probably most NBA players all time. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. It's memorable. But while that's making memories, James, I'm curious, what else is uh, building up that noggin, uh, the hippocampus, if you will? Yeah, I don't want to talk too much about that because I've done such a good job about not talking about positive things for my team this year in an effort to not jinx them. So we can't mention this any further. I want to talk instead about my 2023 nemesis. It is time to bring up Fanatics once again. You know, I was watching the highlights from the Sixers game. I saw P.J. Tucker's torn jersey and that kind of shoddy craftsmanship made me go and look up Fanatics just to see if my nemesis was doing anything. And it turns out that was good timing because the organization that I've continued to hate much of this season has since 2022 been building the corporate foundation for their own sports book. It's going to be called Bet Fanatics. And despite a lot of other recent things like Jamison Williams, among other players, getting uh, suspensions from the NFL, in his case, just for betting on different sports in the locker room or Brad Bohannon from fucking Alabama, despite all of that going on, we are totally fine with on May 14th, this company, Fanatics, who manufactures in the next couple of years, remember, three of the four major leagues' jerseys, they are now purchasing, as of May 14th, points bets, U.S. assets, all of those for $150 million, the seventh biggest betting platform at the time. And now they get all of the money of Fanatics behind them. This is, by the way, Fanatics, now valued at $31 billion, which is 108th if you rank it in terms of all countries' GDP. The 108th biggest country at this point. And yeah, by the way, why Fanatics in particular bought PointsBet? 
is because, uh, importantly, they get the 14 licenses along with all the digital infrastructure from this. And so they now, without having to apply for one, have a New York State gambling license, which was basically what they spent the $150 million on. And yeah, I mean, definitely no way that there could ever be any kind of conflict of interest between a company running a sports book and a company that makes jerseys for three of professional leagues. I hate fanatics very, very much. My Sabrina Ionescu jersey, they should be able to put more care into making sure that it's not a piece of crap, right? That Sabrina Ionescu jersey should have been made with enough quality to guarantee you a high enough fantasy pick to select Sabrina Ionescu. And it is really fanatics that you have to blame and not me. And not you. Not you. That's fine. I was literally wearing it while making Caitlin food. I knew you were. That's the only reason it took me as long as it did to take it. Like, that would have been automatic (laughs) if I wasn't picturing you in your Sabrina jersey. Which did give me pause before doing it. Just know that James felt really bad about doing it, Xavier. No, they didn't. (laughs) I felt as bad as you did taking Dierica Hamby and Kelsey Plum last year. But anyway, that's... I, I still wasn't... I wasn't on the same level as I am now about my WNBA fandom because I hadn't been able to really watch as many games as I did end up getting to do last year. So I wasn't thinking about that at all. I just drafted who ESPN said the best players were last year. You did this knowing what it would do to me. Yeah, I I did do it. I'm not going to pretend like I didn't do it. But I did think real hard about it. And I'm just, I'm thinking real hard about Fanatics all the time. Because truly, like, I just hate that company the more I hear about it. That's what's making memories for me. All of the good stuff and Fanatics. Listen, it just wouldn't, the the fact that Michael Rubin did this step aside to clearly funnel some back channel money to James Harden. And it didn't even end up winning the Sixers a championship. That's the real travesty in all this. Truly, like, what is the good of capitalism if it's not going to get the Sixers even a trip to the Eastern Conference Finals? I would like to have the possibility of going to the finals just once in my adult life. I just want the possibility. We wouldn't even need to go. I just want to be there. But across the pond, there's, there's two teams that are making great memories for me right now. Uh, as we record on Thursday, Newcastle men's team with a massive 4-1 result over Brighton, Hove, and Albion. That's right. They beat three teams today. An incredible performance. But no, in all seriousness, a big win over Brighton, Hove, and Albion, uh, which now positions us for the opportunity for you, dear listener, if you're listening to this on Monday morning when it releases, at 3 p.m. Eastern time, Newcastle can secure a place in the Champions League for the first time in 20 years. All they need to do is win one of their last two games. Now that I have said that, now that I've put that into the universe, there's going to be some bad things that are going to happen. It's going to be very stressful, but I do feel confident uh, the lads are going to pull it out. So that's the first team that's making memories for me. Uh, the second team that's making memories for me is also Newcastle United. It's the women's team because in an incredible race, uh, and we need to tip our caps to Durham, a club that has nowhere near the resources that Newcastle women's team has. It, w- it was not a, a fair fight from a financial perspective, but it was a very fair fight on the field. It came down to the last day. Both of these teams level on points. Newcastle having the goal difference advantage. They score in about the 40th minute, um, and it's kind of a stressful afternoon all the way, and until finally in the 88th minute, it was... I have this, standby. 
They've tweeted this picture of the girl that scored it like five times, and none of them have the caption of her name. This is a woman. This is a woman. Local Jordy woman scores goal. Is Jordy woman the same as Florida man across the pond? Well, they made the whole Jordy shore. Oh, so okay. So Jordy trans. It's New so Jersey. Like, oh, okay. It's New Jersey. Okay. Here we go. In the 88th minute, it was finally Katie Barker slots home a rebound. There's chaos in front of the net. Katie Barker slots at home, which means that Newcastle women took the title in their league, which is one of four leagues that operates in the fourth tier of English football. This means that they are now promoted to third tier because uh, a theme that we've gone over frequently on this podcast is it's always harder for women in sports. To get promotion in the English women's uh, football pyramid, you need to win your league at all levels. Second place does not get you promoted. Whereas, for example, I believe three teams are promoted uh, from the championship. There's three teams that are promoted from League One. Only the champion. We do not reward second place. We do not reward third place. We only reward champions. You need to be the best of the best if you're going to get promoted. And Newcastle women did exactly that. So... Shout out Becky Langley and the entire club. Obviously, massive credit to the ownership because until this consortium took over Newcastle, the women's team was actually not part of Newcastle. They were Newcastle in name, but they were entirely operated separately. The new ownership made sure to bring them in to make sure that they know that they are just as much a part of the club as the men's side is. You're going to get your fair share of oil money, too. Don't worry. We got that good oil money for all genders. There's plenty to go around. Plenty of oil money to go around. And, you know, again, as, as we said with Michael Rubin, capitalism is inevitable. Money will be received in ill-gotten ways. And as long as it is invested in my team's winning, I am all good with it. Shout out the men. Shout out the women. How are the lads? How are the lasses? And let's keep it going. <laughs> there is no ethical consumption or fandom under capitalism. There is nothing ethical about You know what? If all it takes is one journalist being dismembered by Bonesaw for Newcastle to make the championship, <laughs> that, that, that's a price that Diaz is willing to pay. Two, <laughs> two now we gotta like take a step back here. But well, I mean... If you take a utilitarian perspective, I mean, that guy <laughs> and his family are really upset that he got murdered. But there's millions <laughs> of Newcastle fans that are happy right now. Savior, please, what's making memories for you? Please stop this. Jamal Khashoggi, we love you. <laughs> R.I.P. I wish I could just talk about The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom because I know that that's what's actually make memories for all three of us, but this is not that type of podcast. I mean, do you know anything about their speedruns? Like, that's sports. I know someone's already... I'm sure someone's beaten it in an hour at this point. Well, we, Here, let's do, look this up. Do we want to look this up for your making memories? Sure. One hour and 32 minutes they already have it down to. One hour, 29 and 44 seconds is what I see from gymnast. It's already changed in the five seconds since I gave my (laughs) answer. Jesus, look at this. Yeah, less than an hour and a half. I'm going to give a complaint about the way that they measure it. You are allowed to use Amiibo for world record, which is fucking stupid as hell to me. You get your controller, you get the cartridge out the box. That's all you get for a world record in my book. Not my speedrun champion. 
Spoken like someone who doesn't have enough amiibo. Fucking wild. Uh, well, there you go. That's the current record in Tears of the Kingdom. You should play that if you have a Switch. And if you don't, you should probably go get a Switch so you can play it. Agreed. But other than Zelda, I'm thinking of something that goes along with what James was talking about earlier. Over across the pond, Ivan Tony, the Star Striker for Brentford and England, which is suspended for eight months for gambling. In case people don't know, in the UK, they have a blanket ban on athletes gambling on any soccer-related stuff whatsoever. Whether it's a game that's in a totally different country or a transfer, as one of Diaz's favorite players, Kieran Trippier, might recall when he was banned 10 games because someone he knew ambled on him being transferred to Atletico Madrid. So Ivan Tony was charged with gambling when he was in the third division in England and banned eight months. The irony is that Brentford's uh, shirt sponsor is Hollywood Bets. So as he was scoring goals, he was running around in a shirt that said in giant letters in the front, Hollywood Bets. And it is betting that did him in. Like, I, you probably shouldn't be able to bet on games as an athlete. That's true, and that's fine. But, man, you really shouldn't, if you're the league, then be able to make money off of it, too. So, the one thing I will give the it, Premier League is that they're banning gambling sponsors. Like, there, there's a transition cool. period because contracts cool are already, already been signed. Starting in 2026, no one's allowed to have gambling sponsors because it was a massive issue with like half the teams in the Premier League having gambling sponsors and like 70% of those being sites that no one has ever heard of that are like people that there has been some investigative journalism, like deep dives where like some of these companies don't actually exist. They're like shell companies for like Southeast Asian gambling companies that are not real and do human trafficking and stuff like that. So if I just may interject, the Sixers fell for one of those things. Color Star Technologies. That was a whole fun thing. I mean, you all, Diaz, Newcastle is sponsored by Fun88, an Indian gambling group that no one has ever heard of. I've heard I mean, of them. in for a penny, in for a pound <laughs> with dirty money. I mean, at that point, I guess why not? But yeah, so gambling, it's everywhere. And players are, you know, facing the consequences. Iowa and Iowa State have 45 combined players under investigation for gambling right now. It just You can't invite gambling into your sport to make more money and be surprised when players gamble or when coaches gamble. You're literally putting the temptation there so you can make a lot of money as an organization. Insert Pikachu shock face meme here. If you're going to gamble, gamble responsibly. If you've never gambled before, just don't do it. It's, it's not worth it. It's a bad habit to pick up that can be addicting and ruin lives. Plenty of gambling scandals out there. And as we kind of wrap up a discussion of scandalous happenings, Xavier, I believe that leads us perfectly into what you've got for us this week. Yeah, you know, what I just said is going to be a theme because today we're going to talk about scandals. And I want to lead it off by talking about one of the godfathers of college cheating scandals. That man is Jack Molinas. Jack so, Molinas. This, sound, this sounds vaguely Greek. He was not Greek. He was actually Jewish and changed his name from Jacob to Jack to sound less Jewish. This is an uh, excellent start. Big so, John Stewart vibes. Jack Molinas was born on Halloween, 1931 in New York City. 
He grew up in Brooklyn, went to school at Stuyvesant before attending Columbia. During his sophomore season, Jack led Columbia in scoring as they went 22-0 and entered the NCAA tournament ranked number three in the country. Because of how they set the NCAA tournament that like back then, despite being number three, they faced number four Illinois in the first round where they lost 79-71 despite Jack putting up 20 points. Uh, he continued his great showing for Columbia. His senior season, while captaining the Lions, averaged 22 points and 17 rebounds a game. He was fantastic. And because of that, he was drafted number three overall in the 1953 draft by the Fort Wayne Pistons, back when they were in Indiana. He started his rookie season strongly, was averaging 12 points and seven boards per game. He gets selected to the All-Star game his first season. But he does not participate because on January 10th, 1954, the NBA suspended him for betting on Pistons games. Dude, you're a rookie. He's a rookie and he's already betting on Pistons games. He's a rookie and he's already betting on Pistons games. Uh, and he, he claimed that he only bet on the Pistons to win and that he didn't know that there was anything wrong with that. But NBA investigators believe that he was purposely fixing matches one of the, their points of focus was a Celtics game where he came off the bench with one minute left and immediately flagrantly fouled Bob Cousy twice to get himself ejected from the game. I mean, Bob Cousy is a Celtic, so he deserves it. <laughs> yeah, that, can't, that could be a supporting piece of proof, but that's not a smoking gun by any means. Well, you know, not he, he was not happy about this, but a year later, the NBA officially banned him for life. He tried suing the league for $3 million in reinstatement, but did not win. So he never played in the NBA again. And to this day, he's the career leader in all-star appearances versus games played. One all-star selection <laughs> for thir- the 32 games he played in, in his career. Did so, he get any Rookie of the Year votes? Just out of curiosity. I don't believe they had Rookie of the Year at that point. Okay. Because if people were like, look, I know he's banned for life, but it was a good season. That would be very funny. But uh, he probably wasn't eligible to get any votes because they had banned him. So with his NBA career over, he decided to go to Brooklyn Law School. While attending uh, school, and then later while practicing law, he also played in the Eastern Professional Basketball League, which is the predecessor to the CBA, the, the minor leagues. He played for the Williamsport Billies, Hazleton Hawks, and the Wilkes-Bear Barons. He averaged 27 points over the course of nine different seasons with an MVP award and five All-Star selections. This minor league team, because again, he was an incredible player. He just got banned for life for gambling. That entire league is uh, overly happy with alliteration. And I say that as someone that is incredibly overly happy with alliteration in our copy. However, uh, neither his legal practice or his EPBL play was where Jack really focused his time and attention. Uh, Instead, as uh, the New York Times once said, Jack was, quote, probably the greatest fixer of basketball games in history, the Mephistopheles of college sports. I'm a big believer. Uh, If you're going to do something, be good at it. During the 1960-61 NCAA season, a major gambling scandal exploded and Jack was at the center of it. Between 1957 and 1961, 
Jack essentially controlled at least 27 different collegiate programs, including St. John's and the University of Alabama, and managed to rig the outcomes of at least 43 games, which led to the arrest of 37 players from 22 different colleges. St. Joe's was even stripped of the 1961 NCAA tournament third place finish because the starters had controlled the point spreads. He invalidated a third place championship. That's his worst crime. One of the other like things that came about it is a bench player on that St. Joe's team was Paul Tagliabue, who was so scarred for life by what the starters did, like took a hard stance against all forms of gambling when he controlled the NFL. And then once they got rid of him, gambling was became massive in the NFL again. So what, he, he saved the NFL for a little bit. Brief sidebar, was Paul Tagliabue the last good sports commissioner? Depends on your opinion of David Stern, I think. Fair. I mean, like, I, on, I like, think that's the overall question. Do you, if you think David Stern was a good commissioner, David Stern was the last good commissioner. It also depends also, on what you're like are measuring this by because Don Garber took MLS from a six team league that looked like it was about to explode to now 30 teams with just getting a $500 million expansion fee for a new San Diego team that's coming in two years. So if you're going based on like financial stability and like growth, Don Garber is doing a great job. But like, if you're just talking about, you know, general players happy and the world not exploding, I have no idea. Right, yeah, I was going to say, like, there's good for the growth of their sport and then, like, good as a human. Those are two different things. We digress. But anyway. Back to, back to this. Two of the players that Jack had bribed were future Hall of Famers Connie Hawkins, who, despite being a freshman who could not play and who only took, like, $200, not realizing it was a bribe, because, again, he could not play as a freshman because freshmen were allowed to play at that point, was kicked out of Iowa. And Roger Brown, both were blackballed from the NBA entirely and spent pretty much their entire careers in the ABA. Hawkins ended up playing with the Suns like after applying for reinstatement years later. Again, Hall of Fame players in the Naismith Hall of Fame right now who did not get really get to play in the NBA at all because, as t- impressionable teenagers, they took money from... Jack Molinas. So I guess my question, and I think you're touching on it there a little bit, is in all this, and stop me if you're going to get to it, is he like running the book at the center of this, or is he just like distributing the money to fix the outcomes at the center of this, and he's just the person everyone comes to for the outcome they want? So he was in charge of pretty much everything, and I'll get further into it, but he would do things like go to like inner cities to try to find talented basketball players who might have terrible family situations as teenagers to get in their good graces by like covering like someone like a family member's operation or something. So then he could essentially bribe them later on and they would feel indebted to him and take it. He, okay, he but is so a bad at the person. end of the day, he's still trying to engineer outcomes. So he is still like, he's not the book. He's just trying to make money on the stuff and using his influence with the athletes. Well, I can give you like one full example right now. So in the afternoon leading up to a game between Alabama and Tulane in, in 1959, 
Molinas was on the phone with bookies and gangsters in different cities and with Alabama star player Lenny Kaplan. He's feeding them various betting and game fixing instructions, then managing the shifting point spread right up until game time so that he could make money on seemingly contradictory wagers. He was manipulating every step of the way, both the players and the books. The only reason this scandal gets uncovered is because Jack went outside of his comfort zone and tried bribing a University of Florida football player to throw a game, and then one of Jack's associates tried doing the same with a University of Michigan football player, and the football players were not into it, and they're the ones who reported it. Once the investigators started looking into this, it unearthed a history of him rigging sports. So back in Colombia, he was actually working with the mafia to rig games. He would bet against his own team, throw games outright, intentionally miss shots to stay under the, under the spread, etc. There was evidence that he even started gambling and betting on games back when he was in middle school as a 12-year-old. He had, oh, so been like- doing, he had been doing this as long as he had been playing basketball. So he like was way also- above his grade level. Investigators even uncovered that he was a part of the uh, CCNY point shaving scandal in 5051 that had led to the dissolution of the entire championship CCNY basketball program, the LIU program, the cancellation of the, of the Kentucky season. Jack was there participating the whole time, but no one had ever noticed before because he had gotten so good at it. This is from a, a biographer who did a, story, uh, uh, a book on Jack. To Molinas, playing in a rigged ball game was more exhilarating than playing it straight. Was it time to kick a pass out of bounds or get called for a three-second violation? Or should he go on a scoring binge to make his own statistics respectable? Molinas loved the idea of playing so many secret games at the same time. Between 1957 and 1961, Jack would travel from campus to campus with bags of cash and prostitutes. Context, during his one NBA season, he made $10,000. He was offering students $1,000 to fix a single game. He would then sell the fixed game to a bookmaker for $10,000 and then bet on it himself to make extra money. He and his partners made $50,000 or more every single week. So he's literally running his own game with blackjack and hookers. Yes. He allegedly had close contacts with Thomas Aboli, who was the acting head of the Genovese crime family, one of the five families that dominated the mafia. And apparently that allowed him access to bookmakers all over the city and the ability to control so much of this. Neil Isaacs, a uh, sports writer who also wrote a book on Jack, said that he was, quote, born bent. According to Isaacs, Jack was a compulsive gambler and compulsive scam artist. He once fixed a boxing match by having a fighter drugged. He tried to fix races by using a remote electric buzzer that would give horses a motivational jolt in the rear end. He even had his own version of time travel. Through a connection with Con Edison, he's able to reduce the electricity feeding backroom betting parlors. This was barely detectable, but it was enough to put the clocks one minute behind post time so he could bet on horse races that had already finished. I mean, you gotta respect the hustle. <laughs> That's... Super villainy. Oh, every, everything that you'll read about Jack Malise is that he was a villain. Like, he, his, there is no redeeming... Like, like, he was a villain for the sake of being a villain. He just loved it. So multiple players from schools such as Utah, Alabama, Bowling Green, etc. 
all testified against Jack as the mastermind of this gambling conspiracy. In February of 1963, he was convicted by the New York State Supreme Court of conspiracy and bribery, sentenced to 10 to 15 years in prison. The judge called Jack, quote, a master fixer, a moral person, and the ringleader of groups that corrupted college ballplayers to dump games for money. As a result of Jack's crimes, Congress passed the Sports Bribery Act in 1964 to make game-fixing a federal crime just because they didn't think he got punished enough. So Jack gets sent to Attica Prison, where he spends five years before getting out early. He immediately moves to L.A., where he starts producing X-rated films and dating porn stars. He lived in a multi-million dollar mansion in Hollywood Hills, and was importing furs and pornography from Taiwan and playing pickup games with celebrities, including apparently one game where he played against Wilt Chamberlain. Eventually, I want all your <laughs> finest furs and pornography. From Taiwan. I mean, if, if you lived in L.A. in the 70s, I'm pretty sure you had like a 70% chance of playing pickup with Wilt Chamberlain at some point. I've heard so many stories about If Will you Chamber- were also hanging out with uh, sex workers, yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> No, you maybe, he, maybe he hooked up Will. You don't you get to 10000 without paying for a couple of them. <laughs> you know, maybe, also, maybe also Jack sex work is up. fine for the record. Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah, we, we, we support it. We endorse it. But Will had to pay for a couple. And there's nothing wrong with that. Eventually, Jack does get arrested again and gets charged with the interstate shipment of pornography, which was a crime at this point. Quick digression, it's also important to note that although this has never been 100% proven, multiple articles from ESPN and The Athletic, among others, state that Molinas was the inspiration for Paul Crew in The Longest Yard. Apparently, screenwriter Keenan Wynn lived just around the corner from Molinas, and all this was happening, like, The Longest Yard came out like, a couple of years after Molinas had come to L.A. and was living right around the corner from this writer. And apparently they <laughs> if, pulled a lot of info from Molinas' life. If that's true, uh, it becomes much funnier that Adam Sandler takes that role on in the remake because Adam Sandler, probably much closer to a Brooklyn Jew than Burt Reynolds. Well, and then goes on to do Uncut Gems. So that, that has been said as fact by like The Athletic as recently as two weeks ago. But just because I couldn't find a full confirmation, I do want to say that is... Allegedly based on, on parts of Molinus's life. Unfortunately, Jack never stands trial for this interstate shipment of pornography charge, as his prior indiscretions did come back to haunt him. So less than a year after his business partner gets brutally murdered, suggested to have been set up by Molinus for a multi-hundred-thousand-dollar life insurance payment, Jack gets shot in the head while standing in his backyard on August 3rd, 1975, at the age of 43. The motive for the murder is never released, but the police effectively said that it was a mob-related murder over unpaid debts. You know, when, when you get involved with the mafia as a preteen and spend your whole life potentially making money for them and then don't pay them, that's probably what's going to happen. So, Jack, evil, evil man who destroyed the lives of many people for his own satisfaction and gambling addiction... Sold a lot of pornography. It shot Consu- in the head. Mafia consumed style. a lot of pornography. Also, <laughs> by consumed the a lot of pornography. 
And we're okay with both of those. It's executed by the mob. We're not okay with the mob executing people. Honestly, The Longest Yard does not sound like the most interesting movie that could be made from that gentleman's life. There could be a lot of movies made from his life, but it's hard because you always want to try to humanize people. I mean, they, they, they try to make Paul Crew not a, not a total douchebag in The Longest Yard, but no, Malinus was just a bad guy. He never felt bad about anything he ever did. We're, we're in the modern age of the anti-hero now. I mean, people fucking love Walter White. <laughs> He's no better than Jack Molinas. I mean, look at uh, Wolf of Wall Street, too. How many, how many people oh, yeah, went into finance and got the wrong idea from that? This is Mart Scorsese. We just got the trailer for the Lotus Killing Moon. I fucked that title up badly, but the new Martin Scorsese film. Is it like the moon Cameron. killing flowers or something? Or flowers Some, it's it's referring moon. to the fact that it is a, uh, May is a period of springtime where the larger plants grow up and choke out the flowers underneath. It is, I, I'm not trying to make light of this movie of terrible indigenous killings. Anywho, Jack Molinas, fucking wild. Next Martin Scorsese flick. But enough about Jack Molinas. I would love to hear from one of you two about... So another fun scandal filled with death and pornography. So mine also deals with gambling. So I guess that's related. I'll know if yours does. <laughs> I do not have gambling mentioned. Gambling was only in my making memories this week. Okay. Then I think let's, let's keep it rolling with the gambling theme. Um, and let's go into my guy. Um, that was a great pun. Keep it rolling. So one of the... One of the things that we almost all can universally agree upon as sports fans, right? Whether you're an Orioles fan, whether you're a Yankees fan, a Phillies fan, whether you're a Knicks fan, a Sixers fan, a Spurs fan, fuck the refs, right? Fuck the refs suck. We hate refs. They're no good. They serve no purpose. And personally, I think they should be banned. I like the way Ultimate Frisbee does it. Let's be reasonable people. Let's talk this out as competitors. We, we know better than some fucking asshole that's not even playing this game right now. This is so funny coming from the one person out of three of us who has been paid to be an umpire. I'm the only one that was ever good. That was why I had <laughs> The problem is you make a rule that no refs are allowed, but then how do you reinforce it? It's, it's a, a, a vicious cycle. And it's a, a catch-22 almost. There you go. There you go. It can be a bit of a catch-22. I, I personally would vote to, to ban all officials, all referees, all umpires. And there's one man that does hold the distinction. We made great progress back in 1882 when the first and only umpire was ever banned from baseball. This is a guy that had a fairly successful career in the early beginnings of professional baseball. Uh, got to start as a player. But throughout his career, people just had a kind of a, a, a side-eyed glance at him. Weren't really quite sure if they could trust him. He was a bit of a dick, uh, which is fitting, because we're talking about Richard Higgum, better known as Dick Higgum. That's a great name. And that's, that's an early entry in good baseball names, too. It's, it's, they're, they're, we have some more great names along the way. I, I'll, I'll promise you that. But uh, Dick Higgum is the only umpire to ever be banned from professional baseball. But he, he didn't get his start behind the plate, behind the catcher. He didn't get his start on the diamond at all, actually. Uh, he, he is originally a cricket player because 
he is an Englishman by birth. Richard Higgum, born July 24th, 1851 in Ipswich, Suffolk uh, in England. His family would immigrate over to the United States when he was two years old. His father, James, was an innkeeper by trade, but was also a pretty good cricket player over in England. Once he came over to the States, uh, he helped with kind of the, the early development of the game of cricket in the United States, was a principal officer in the New York Cricket Club, and notably, uh, he staunchly opposed the efforts of their rivals uh, at St. George's, who wanted to charge admission for matches to help set off the cost of paying professional players. So James Higgum, early advocate for the fan. In another life, perhaps a guy that we'll talk about more. And he had a lot of influence uh, in New York. When he passed away in 1872, the New York Times wrote of him as, quote, the well-known cricketer and keeper of a popular English restaurant in this city for many years. Unfortunately, passed away at the age of 45. He was known as one of the leading players in the New York Cricket Club and did much to foster the game in its infancy. The deceased was a man of many fine points, and his sudden death will be regretted by a large circle of friends. So, rest in peace, 150 years ago, James Hagel. Certainly a quality guy. And so, at the age of 20, now Dick Hagel is on his own. Now, before that, he had some experience playing semi-pro to professional baseball. Obviously, there is a lot of skill crossover between cricket and baseball, especially in the early days of baseball, we're talking about you can get an out off of a bounce. We're talking about the dead ball era, which was much more similar to uh, a cricket ball. So as much as the, the skills crossover exists even now, it was much more pronounced at that time before the game started to diverge from each other more. Uh, he was known most notably throughout his career, for his very aggressive style. Many news reports at the time would note that he, quote, growled uh, at umpires. I believe this is just an instance where growled means something different now than it did then. But in both instances, it means you ain't happy with the guy. Um, <laughs> so we, we do not assume that he was a closet furry. I, it's very possible. I'm not sure how accepting they were back then during the Civil War. Uh, um, but unconfirmed. There's a lot unconfirmed about this story, which is kind of what makes it so interesting to me because there's so much that just wasn't reported and it's kind of lost the time and we need to fill in the blanks. So we're trying to fill in the blanks here as best as we can. By 1869, nice, Dick Higgum was basically at the upper echelons of amateur baseball um, around New York. He was the catcher for the Empire Club of the National Association of Baseball Players. Always arguing with the umpires, as we mentioned. Once tried to claim an out that had bounced off of the reporter's table, which was on the field of play. Umpires weren't having that. Dick Higgum wasn't any too happy about that. Very fiery player. So 1869, his first season playing for them. In 1870... He continues playing for Empire Club, mostly playing second base. Uh, sometimes he's a catcher. Uh, and he's known most for being an excellent batter. 
He started off in the cleanup spot before he would eventually move to the leadoff position. In October of 70, he made his professional debut. He would sign with the New York Mutual Club, uh, which is one of the four top pro teams in the world at the time. Not officially affiliated with necessarily a league, but, you know, there's some teams that are amateur. There's some teams that are pro. We're in this weird barnstorming era of baseball. Dick's getting paid. Dick's making some money. At the end of the season, though, we're starting to, to see some, some troubling trends from, from Tricky Dick. He's an incredibly proficient batter, and it just seems like sometimes he's locked in in the field, and sometimes he's throwing it all over the place. A lot of people are kind of wondering what's going on. Is there some money coming into the back channels? Baseball had a lot of betting controversies at this time. Ultimately, during his playing career, nothing's really ever proven. But it is something that comes up time and time again. In 1871, we see the establishment of the National Association of Professional Baseball Players, which is the first professional circuit of baseball. So the first entirely professional league, Dick Higgum is an inaugural member. He is originally signing to play second base, but his manager had different ideas and wanted to switch him to be a full-time catcher. The manager for the New York Mutuals was named Bob Ferguson, uh, also known by his nickname, Death to Flying Things. What the hell? Good old Death to Flying Things Ferguson. And you might think, that's a really weird fucking nickname for a person. And you'd be right. But let me tell you, there were three baseball players that had the nickname Death to Flying Things. <laughs> that's so stupid. So we have Mr. Ferguson. We also have Jack Chapman. And we have Franklin Gutierrez, who played from 2005 to 2017. Might remember him for the Mariners. Might remember him for the for the Cleveland baseball team for the Dodgers. He was nicknamed Death to Flying Things after a diving catch. Dave Niehaus gave Gutierrez that nickname. So two dudes from the 1800s, and then we flash forward to 2009 when Franklin Gutierrez gets that nickname. Gutierrez probably worth another deep dive at another date. But again, let's bring it back to our main course, Mr. Dick Higgum. He develops a lot as a catcher. So in his first season as a catcher, he had a 75% fielding percentage, which is pretty atrocious. Sure, it's um, not good. Really bad. But he, he's, he's a good catcher back there. Only allows one pass ball in his first start, which was apparently great back then. This is when they weren't wearing masks. So, like, I'm okay with it. The fielding percentage makes sense when you consider... I'm judging 1860s catchers. Yeah, what's his fielding percentage plus? Fielding percentage plus... Probably that's this. not a thing. I, yeah, that's not a thing. <laughs> Is it a thing? It should be a thing. I should just start trying to say statistics and see if they roll <laughs> off Diaz's back. No, we have to make up our own advanced analytic, like how the Sickos committee came up with Detmer. We have to figure... We have to come up with one. That's going to be a bonus episode at some point. Brainstorming and analytic. We'll establish the dog coefficient. But for now, a couple notable things that uh, Dick Higgum is involved in in that 1871 season, the first season of professional baseball. He 
was the batter for the first triple play in, in National League history. Uh, on May 13th, 1876, he hit into that. Uh, so excuse me, that's no, not the first season. It takes until that fifth season uh, in 1876. He hits into the first triple play in National League history. But he also was doing pretty good that year. He led the National League in doubles in 1876. He had 21 across 67 games. So that's what qualified you as the best power hitter in baseball back then. 21 doubles to go with uh, no home runs. He did have two triples. But So as I mentioned earlier, there's some weird things that happen at weird times uh, in games with Dick Higgum. The Mutuals, the club that he joined, had previously had three players banned from baseball for throwing a game in 1865. So it's something that they are particularly sensitive to. The team's performance was noted to be maddeningly erratic. Members were undisciplined and disputatious, uh, according to this wonderful write-up that the freelibrary.com put together, uh, which is the source for almost all of this information. So I just want to say libraries are good. Free libraries are even better, and they're available right on your computer, thefreelibrary.com. They're not paying also us. Also fund public libraries. Also fund public libraries. Thefreelibrary.com, they're not paying us. It just made it possible for me to learn anything about this baseball player from the 19th century. The team was also given to questionable personal habits and associations with unsavory characters. Gambling was not illegal at this time. It was very widespread within baseball, but it was just the association with the players that people were really worried about. In 1872, so we've talked about Kurt Flood on this podcast, but... Uh, Kurt Flood actually didn't come up with free agency. Dick Higgum came up with free agency. Um, in 1872, he became one of the first free agents in professional baseball. He would only sign one-year contracts from this point on so that he could maintain his free agency. And uh, so after that season with the Mutuals in 1871, he actually goes down to your neck of the wood, James, and he signs with that famous feathered baseball team from Baltimore. Yes, the Canaries. <laughs> Baltimore Canaries, somehow more intimidating than the franchise I root for now. They wore yellow pants with black and yellow striped silk shirts and hats. That's so, fire! That's awesome! Make that our city connect this year. Be a great throwback. He's split between catcher and outfield here. He plays in 49 games. Also plays him first, also plays him second, also plays him third. He hits 343 this season for the Canaries with 72 runs scored. And he hits his first two professional home runs that year. He also commits 55 errors and route to a 79.6 fielding percentage. He was oh, noted the average. Not, yeah, like wins him a gold glove. I mean, back then it was fantastic. He uh, added to his, quote, considerable reputation with that season. Uh, and people noted his cricketing experience to give him a specific advantage. So the, the, the rumors of crooked play really start picking up in 1874. These are often directed at players in the National Association, now known as the National League. And on July 9th of 1874, the Mutes, as they were known, short for Mutuals, are up 5-0 on the Philadelphia Athletics. But in the sixth inning, a, quote, bad muff by Higgum <laughs> uh, is, is ruled an error. And 
he then compounds it with a wild throw to Hatfield, uh, which allowed three runs to come around for Philadelphia to tie the game. The next inning, Philadelphia would gain the lead for the first time, going up 6-5 without recording a hit in the entire game. The New York Herald would assert a few more games like the one in the Union grounds last week and goodbye to the national game. They would later lose another game in August to the Chicago White Stockings. The Chicago Tribune would declare this game, quote, disgraced by palpable and unblushing fraud. We got to bring back the way that they wrote about sports back in the 19th century. It is incredible prose. Unfortunately, our friend Jake Adams is the only sports writer left in the world because they have all been replaced by chat GPT and venture capitalists. Look, whip out that thesaurus, Jake. Give us some some beautiful yarns. Keep spinning them. But uh, the Tribune specifically implicated Higgum as being behind the fix uh, in this one. The Mutes had previously won all five of their games against Chicago, which kind of added to the perception around this game. Higgum, quote, neglected a batted ball at one point, and once he picked it up, he uncorked a, quote, Terrific throw, uh, but we need to remember terrific is derivative of terrible back then. So it was terrific if you were a fan of the Mutes. Led the two runs, and then when they get to the ninth, New York has a chance to rally. Hagel is on first, uh, representing the leading run, and he decides to just go for, quote, a slow steal from first, in fact, so slow as to seem deliberate, and was put out easily. starts on a light jog down the second base and the runner from third doesn't even come in to get the tie-in run so they they lose the game uh as a result of that the the tribune uh later would call this game a steal and specifically pointed to higgum as a suspect higgum was also the manager at the time for this team the player manager which kind of adds to the controversy They would further allege that three outsiders made it a business to travel with the mutual club and identified Higgum as having, quote, an interest with one of them. As was typically the case back then, the allegations are not investigated. 1875, the Heat's starting to get on in New York. So Dickey gets on out of there. He goes over to those Chicago White Stockings uh, for a sizable salary of $2,200. I don't have the inflation calculator in front of me, but I, I believe that that was sizable. This, of course, raises even more eyebrows since he just threw a bunch of games to the White Stockings. But no harm, no foul. It's not investigated. He would continue to kind of just bounce around the major leagues for a couple more years. As I said, with the White Stockings in 75, in 1876, he would sign with the Hartford Dark Blues. Then he takes 77 off, signs with the Providence Grays for 78. Again, the name sucked back then. They were, it was I, literally Dark just, Blues is okay. I kind no, of it's not. No, it's not. Well, we get even more simplified, I guess, uh, with the final team that he would play for in Major League Baseball. Most people thought that this was actually uh, a favor to good old Death to Flying Things, who was then the manager of the Troy Trojans in 1880. So he made one celeb appearance in 1880 in five at-bats. He had one hit, did not come around to score. 
And so ends the playing career of Dick Hagum. But again, we're not so interested in his playing career. We're interested in his umpiring career, which, by the way, was ongoing throughout his playing career. The way it was back then, their logic was, this is a new game. The rules are confusing. Who knows the rules better than the players themselves? So if you weren't playing that day, you would just umpire. You might even umpire your own team's game. They really just, no standards, no anything back then. It was truly the the wild, wild west of the baseball era. In 1882, he is umpiring games for the Detroit Wolverines. And it's also important to note, this is the way that it was done back then. If you were an umpire, you were essentially assigned to a team and you would umpire all of those teams' home games. So in 1881, he umpires for the Detroit Wolverines. He's actually known as one of the best umpires in the National League. There were nine umpires for the following season in 1882. He was the only one who was brought back from 1881. So his reputation is just about unimpeachable as an umpire. Also, how sad is it that this like 1880s baseball league is way more chill about like retiring out their nine people with absolute power than the United States judicial branches? I mean, it, I, I wish, I wish modern baseball still had that same thing. Get Angel Hernandez out of here. If he's not doing a good job and yes, the Supreme court, a little higher implications. All to say, Dick Higgum was a great umpire, but in 1882, his second season, William G. Thompson, who is uh, not just the owner of the Detroit Wolverines, he's also the mayor of Detroit. So this is a man that takes tremendous pride in the civic duty of his Wolverines to represent his city. He got suspicious about some of the calls that Higgum was making against his team. So he hired a private detective to try to get to the bottom of this, private eye. And he turned up several letters, several telegrams between Dick Higgum and a well-known gambler of the time. There's a simple code. There was only one message that was ever sent between these two. It would be a telegram sent from Higgum to this gambler. And it would say, quote, buy all the lumber you can. If the gambler received this telegram, it meant that he was to bet on Detroit. If the gambler did not receive a telegram that day, it was meant that he should bet against Detroit. This was the only evidence that was turned up. And for the rest of his life, Dick Higgum would vehemently deny the accusations. However, as a result of this, it was the determination of the National Association to ban Dick Higgum from the game of baseball, never to return. To this day, he is still the only umpire to ever be banned from baseball. So you thought Tim Donahue was the first one. You were wrong. This happened way, way back in the day. Dick Higgum took care of it. He would go on to move back to Chicago uh, in the falling out from this, where he became a bookkeeper. So semi-related, some money things going on there. He would live to the age of 53, and he would pass away on March 18th, 1905, and he is buried at the Mount Hope Cemetery. So much like our boy Jack Molinas, 
a not a long life, but a full life filled with a lot of emotion, a lot of anger, a lot of growling, a lot of death to flying things. And ultimately, I, I just want to give credit to the National Association for doing what everybody should do, which is ban umpires. And while we love the story of Dick Higgum, I am glad that he was banned. Shout out to, I want to find the name. I'm trying to find the name of the commissioner that banned him. So it's, it's not, I, I cannot determine it because there was two commissioners in 1882. William Holbert uh, started it and Arthur Soden ended 1882. So it could be either of those two guys. But one of you, thanks for doing what needed to be done. Thanks for banning an umpire. Thanks for banning Dick Higgum. Never trust an Englishman in an American's game. That's, you're, you're goddamn right. You're goddamn right. Man, both of these just absolutely filled with ill-gotten gains. I, it is interesting to me because we were joking about the Supreme Court, but like MLB does hold umpires to a slightly higher standard than, than we hold justice at this point. And there is some amount of respect that I have for the position for that reason. Like We, we, we expect a lot of umps, even if they are Angel Hernandez. And the fact that this guy is the only one to ever truly cross that line it's kind of impressive for the rest of the profession, though I am I am still very impressed by Dick Higgum. A well, terrific career. Yeah, and, and like if he never gets this umpire shit, like he would have been remembered as like one of the better players of the dead ball era. But instead he goes down as the only umpire to ever be banned. But you know, Xavier and I both talked about gambling. I mean, maybe you foreshadowed a little bit, James. I heard ill-gotten gains. Are we going PEDs? Where are we going with this one? Yes, ill-gotten gains indeed, Diaz. Uh, they're not gains, no muscles, no, no PEDs. As I often do, I'd like to begin with some extraneous background information. In the first century CE, Plutarch published a book. It's called On the Glory of Athens, and it's the first written version that we have that we know about retelling a legend. And it's a legend that comes from a story in the Greco-Persian Wars. is around 490 BCE. And there's a story of this one soldier. His name is either Euclid or Philippides or maybe Thersippus of Erceus. Doesn't very much matter. He's at this battle. They beat the Persians. And he sees one Persian ship as the battle's ending sail off to Athens. He figures, oh, they're going to try and trick him before they know the info to be like, haha, we beat you. Now surrender to us. So he runs all the way to Athens, miles and miles down there. And uh, legend has that he made it into the assembly hall, informed them that the battle was won, and then killed over dead. This is the story of the Battle of Marathon. And then in 1896, 2,000 years later, some French dudes thought that this made an excellent origin story for an endurance race. So they invented the marathon. First ever, like, professional marathon takes place in those first Olympics in 1896 in Paris. And the next year, I mentioned the last time we were all together, Safan Hassan uh, was in one of the six major marathons when she participated in the London Marathon. The first of those six, the first ever annual marathon in 1897 that's founded in Boston, taking place on Patriots Day. Quick question for you. Do either of you know what Patriots Day celebrates? New England Patriots. It's, uh, say it's a Canadian holiday. It is not a Canadian holiday. It is a very American holiday. It is uh, the Battle of Lexington and Concord anniversary. So that's why they celebrate it up there in Boston. 
they basically just want to tell Britain to fuck off. And they start doing this with a marathon every year. And this gets held forever and ever. It really, though, in the 60s and 70s starts to catch on, like running in general, because there's this hot new trend called jogging, taking the world by storm. And this is when marathon popularity exploding. It is also during this time when our guy today arrives on the shores of the U.S. This guy was born in Havana, Cuba, back on June 21st, 1953, and now at the age of eight with their family. They're moving to the second biggest Memphis in the country. That's right, Memphis, Florida. And here in America, this is where we are going to begin to tell the tale of the most famous, air quotes here, marathoner of all time. My guy today is Rosie Ruiz. I, I know exactly where you're going with this, and this is one of my favorite things. It's a I'm really good pleased. story. It's an incredibly good story. This story continues uh, with Rosie coming to the U.S. with her mother. Very shortly thereafter, the two of them are separated, and she lives with a series of like extended family members in Hollywood, Florida. Just keeps going to like these knockoff cities of other states here in Florida. That is where she graduates from South Broward High in 72. That is also the alma mater of Marquise Hollywood Brown. And in 1973, she goes and gets checked out. She's been having like headaches and blackouts. And a supposedly tangerine-sized tumor is removed from her brain. Uh, she will later on get a plastic plate inserted into her skull for this. This doesn't really slow her down. By 1977, she's graduating from Wayne State College in Nebraska. And then she moves to New York City, baby. In 1978, that is when she gets that plate in her skull. And it is around this time, here at, at the peak of jogging fever, that she takes up this whole jogging thing. She starts getting into long-distance running. And New York was absolutely sick with jogging fever at that time. It was a pandemic. In 1970, the second of those six big major ones that takes place in the U.S., was coming about. That is when the New York Marathon was founded in 1970. It is still to this day the largest annual marathon in the world. This year we had 47,838 people compete back in November of 22. The world record was back in 2019 before shit started hitting the fan. That was 53,627 people that completed it. In 1979, this is it's still very big. It's the first time that it ever cracks 10,000 people that complete it. And one of those 10,000 is Rosie Ruiz. It's her first ever marathon. She's been training for about a year. She does pretty darn well. Finishes with two hours, 56 minutes, and 29 seconds. That is good for 11th amongst the women. The winner that year is uh, Greta Weitz, who won with her first ever, and anyone's first ever, sub-two-hour, 30-minute marathon. This is the second of nine straight she wins. She is clearly too good to guy, though. We do not need to concern ourselves with that. 11th place. That's guy territory right there. And so we stick with Rosie Ruiz. Everyone is thrilled for Rosie, especially at her job. She works in this office at a commodities firm, Metal Traders Incorporated, and her boss, also bitten by the jogging bug, really big running fan. And when he hears that Rosie's time has qualified her for the 1980 Boston Marathon, he insists, you know, she had been thinking, ah, I'm waffling on it, maybe I won't go. He's like, I'm going to pay your way. Like, you need to take this opportunity. I need you to go run in the 1980 Boston Marathon. So she's, all right, sure. Why not? We move to Patriots Day 1980. It is 4:21. I am sorry. It is unfortunately April 21st. But on April 21st, we have the Boston Marathon being held. She is ranked W50. She's the 50th best woman. And W50 is what her bib says. It's very important to note that 
on the bibs, all the women numbers, begin with a W so that the crowd can identify the first female runner. That will be important later. So I'm just making sure to mention that. Okay. There are two main contenders as we enter this that people are kind of watching. There's Jacqueline Garot, who is a Canadian who had placed third in the New York City Marathon the year before. Uh, and then Patty Lyons is the hometown girl from Quincy, Massachusetts. And she would take second in the New York City Marathon later on. They both compete in many Boston marathons. So everyone is expecting those two to be at the top. But even beyond them, it is a stacked field because of our old friends, the 1980 Moscow Summer Olympics. And the fact that the United States is boycotting them means that the U.S. heats normally held at that time are qualifiers for nothing. So like it is absolutely just chock-a-block full of championship contender marathon field here. Those two, though, still, as we go through, much of the marathon are leading the pack. Jacqueline Corot ends up finishing with what would be, in any other year, the fastest female time ever to date, with two hours, 34 minutes, 28 seconds. Even a little bit behind her, Patty Lyons, in any other year, her two hours, 35 minutes, and eight seconds would be, to date, the fastest American woman's time. But astonishingly, unbelievably, when they cross the finish line, the winner's laurels are already resting on the brow of one Rosie Ruiz. I mean, just a remarkable, remarkable, first of all, improvement, right? Because, I mean, this is way faster than her New York City time, even. Oh, it's insanely faster than New York City time. And another thing about kind of the difference between this one and the New York one. So there was another character who was at both of those this time. It's Bill Rogers. He had won in the men's competition that day. It was his third straight Boston Marathon. He's in a bit of a heater because he'd also won the New York City one. It was his fourth straight at the time. Bill Rogers, fucking kicking ass. But because he won the last time, you know, he didn't take any notice of who the 11th place woman was this time when he finishes and pretty shortly after him he sees the woman finish someone that he doesn't recognize and it, it also had been a pretty hot day 70 degrees rogers has talked about how much of a struggle it was like he collapsed twice on it and still won by a very good margin he had himself a day but it was it was a pretty brutal one and he sees rosie ruiz and her like company sponsored mti shirt hardly soaked like barely damp not nearly sweaty enough to have raced a marathon in his professional opinion. And so he comes up to her. He's like, what were your splits? There is a, a sports illustrated article from that week. That was like the, the next one that was published after this race where the, it says at the scene, uh, Rosie Ruse had to have the concept of splits explained to her in order to answer the question. That's not good. Well, yeah, that's like, that's when you get down and like you're stretching out your groin, right? Like a split. No, exactly. Honestly, might have been her initial thing, but once she finally gets it explained to her, she's now like, "Oh, well, I ran a, a five thirty mile, and it's my second marathon, so I don't, you know, know any better. I just accidentally paced myself to the men, and that's how she supposedly finished with an unheard of time: two hours, thirty one minutes, fifty six seconds. You talked about improvement, Diaz. That is twenty five minutes faster than her New York City time just seven months ago." A five minute and 46 mile pace, which is insane for the Boston Marathon, regardless of your gender, regardless of who you are. It's fucking incredible performance by Rosie Ruiz. I mean, I don't run a lot, James, but I don't think I would physically be able 
to improve my mile pace by a whole minute in just seven months. I'm a little because you're not trying hard enough, Diaz. That's exactly what it is. You need the right motivation. I'm I'm a famously low effort person. Well, uh, Diaz, your efforts here to kind of dig deeper, it's something that a lot of other racers around her are doing this very moment. This is, as I said, an unbelievable scene to many people. The questions continue after she's declared the winner. Garou and Leon's, remember, they were being told by people as they went past that they were the leading women at many different stops. And they ask her about running through the suburb of Wellesley. This is very near Boston. Ruiz, she hasn't mentioned anything in particular, which is curious because during that time, you go past Wellesley College, one of the oldest women's colleges in the country, and famously, they will always just go bananas for the first female runner that goes by them. It is kind of the thing that that area is known for within the race every single year. Ruiz doesn't mention anything about that. And finally, she's been shuttled off by the police at this point, still with the medal, still with the laurel, still at the time, officially declared the winner. But this is when finally two Harvard students come forward with the quote-unquote smoking gun. They're, the reason that no one can find any pictures of Ruiz in the race at this point is because at some point after starting, somehow she left the course, allegedly, and re-entered the course near these two Harvard students, just about a half mile away from the finish line uh, after just a long stretch of male runners had started going by. So she hopped on in and crossed the finish line shortly thereafter. So this seemingly explains why no photographer saw her. But this information comes out about Boston, and to get some thoughts resurfacing in the head of another photographer, this one named Susan Morrow, only she's a photographer in New York City. She sees all these pictures of Rosie, she says, hey, I recognize that one from the marathon last year. She was the one that rode the subway with me. We go back to the New York City Marathon, and based on Morrow's account, Ruiz boarded the subway shortly after beginning the New York City Marathon and rode with Moro, holding conversation with her the entire time, pretty much up until the stop immediately before that. And then uh, what you know, the account kind of goes into, she was like, I don't remember exactly what happened after we left it, but she believes that she went up to the medical tent, basically identified herself as an injured runner, and that got her credit for finishing the New York City Marathon. That's actually pretty genius. This is the account of Susan Morrow, which is not necessarily corroborated. However, it does get New York City looking a little further at some other things, mostly her application, which first off was turned in late, but she got dispensation because she claimed that she was currently suffering brain cancer. Now, this is not to make light of the fact that Rosie Ruiz did at one point in her life have and survive a bout with brain cancer. That was several years ago at this point. It has not resurfaced, so that was a lie that she made in order to bypass the deadline that she missed. She also claimed that she expected her finish time to be about four hours and ten minutes. So they looked at that and looked at the 2.56 that she reportedly finished with with New York City. And New York City did shortly thereafter on April 25th, this is just four days after the Boston Marathon, retroactively disqualifying her from the New York City Marathon. This brings into some question her eligibility to even participate in Boston in the first place. That doesn't matter for very long because they retroactively disqualify her later that week. So, Garou is now the champ of that Boston Marathon. Leon's now is her number two, and she's got that record American time. And uh, also for the record, just want to mention, Rosie does not return the medal. So, Garou has declared the winner. 
She does not. I, I'm sure that she gets like a replica medal at some point. Rosie does have the medal, and as far as we know, the winner's Laurel. That's so funny. So two years later, there is this 10K in Miami, and Goro participates. And afterwards, who does she run into? Rosie Ruiz. And they're chatting for a little bit. When Goro like, feels she has to bring it up, she asks, why did you do that in Boston? And Ruiz's immediate response is, I ran it. I won it. And then she just walks away. She <laughs> does not budge on this story. And what I, what I feel like I got to say now is we enter 1982 when this happens is I, I'm not saying that karma is definitely a thing, but around this time, while she's maintaining that story, people again look at Rosie and they decide to revisit some things, much like that New York City application. This time it's some of her coworkers kind of revisiting the lavish lifestyle that she, an office worker, has been living. She's been going skiing all the time, has like this beautiful apartment. Uh, turns out she's been embezzling from MTI this entire time to the tune of about $60,000, which in 2021 would have been equivalent to $168,000. I'm going to go ahead and assume we've gained that last thousand in the last two years, $169,000. Very nice. So she's immediately arrested and spends a week in jail and then five years of probation. She does not uh, stick to the probation very long. She promptly breaks it the next year. She is arrested for allegedly brokering a deal in Florida for two kilograms of cocaine. <laughs> as the middle woman, as the middle woman, not as a supplier or producer. She's just hooking it up, uh, but she does get busted for that. We went over this with Pete Weber. And I'm not an expert, folks, but I do know two kilograms is not personal use amounts. <laughs> the math does not check out for that. The math does not check out. The next year, she marries this guy, Icaro Vivas. Uh, it is a marriage that crumbles after two years. They do manage to squeeze three kids into that two years. That math also doesn't check out. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, two and some change. But she keeps the name, maybe for the added anonymity. She will remain Rosie Vivas until she passes away at the age of 66 due to a different kind of cancer this time. Uh, it's July 8th, 2019, that Rosie Vivas, otherwise known as Rosie Rees, dies. As of 2000, like one of the last times that someone managed to speak with her, presumably up to her death, if this was any indication, she maintained that she ran the Boston Marathon. However, there is one acquaintance who knew her around 1980, 1981, and this what they claim might explain some of the like boneheadedness of how just truly brash this deception was regarding the Boston Marathon. So this acquaintance claimed that shortly after she ran the race, she told him that when she jumped out, you know, it was only her second marathon, and she just didn't realize that like when the men were going by, she should probably wait a while until the women come by also to cheat. And who knows, she probably would have gotten away with it at that point. She'd have an 11th place finish in the New York City Marathon. Maybe she's got like a 12th or something in Boston. But it, it just, you can't, you can't lie that big. That's too big of a lie to stand on at that point. Regardless, for a time, whatever the reason behind her actions, they made her one of the world's most famous runners, despite the fact that she barely ran at all, allegedly. And even as the fame has worn off, one thing has remained, and that is her status as a guy. Rosie Ruiz, my guy for this week. I hope you enjoyed. I did enjoy.
Well, it's fascinating because it's like I can't think of another competitive endeavor or like athletic event where like this would even be possible because almost all sports are played on like a confined field. Like you're not really going to sneak into an NBA game. There's that guy that one time that dressed up in the Pelican stuff. That was delightful. But like that's really your best case scenario. So it's it's something that's only really possible in this sport of marathon running. And I mean, I mean, she did it at like the perfect time in society to get away with it, right? Like we we're covering these things in mass, but we don't really have the technology to track people yet. I don't think they had clearly they didn't have the um the electronic bib trackers back then. <laughs> no, it's a it's a it's a fascinating tale. I, I'm glad that you mentioned the bibs. I do just real quick want to say there was one other marathon controversy that like immediately came to mind when you gave us the topic, Xavier, because I remember reading a New Yorker article uh, about it forever back in like 2012. And there is a guy, Kip Litton, who cheated in like dozens of different marathons by figuring out how to trick all of the bibs. And I, if that sounds interesting to you, you should read the article Marathon Man by Mark Singer. It is in the July 30th, 2012 edition of The New Yorker. So go check that out. But it, it he did the story as well as that could possibly be done. I would have just been regurgitating his article. So we did Rosie Ruiz instead, the original marathon cheater. And yeah, God, what a, what a fucking cheat it was. This is the easiest way to cheat. Well, I mean, I really think she could have gotten away with it if she knew a little bit more about marathons. That's what I'm fascinated about. You're saying you could have cheated better than her. I'm not saying that I could have cheated better than her. I'm saying I'm looking at these three. And I mean, as always, the number one thing when you're, you're cheating is greed is eventually going to get you. But hers is the only one where I feel like you maybe could explain away the greed by it just being dumb, because you could have like you could have finished eleventh again and probably just gotten away with it. Well, also just the the flat refusal to learn anything about the endeavor in which you are trying to like like the equivalent would be like if I came out with some fucking AI generated bullshit and said that I painted this, and then they were like, oh, like what techniques did you use or like which artists inspired you and like. What what kind of paint did you use? Yeah, I'd be like, uh, red. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, come on. I, like, you need to learn a little bit if you're trying to hustle. Literally, the elite of this industry. Like, so let's, you think let's... about the dude who repainted uh, "Who's Afraid of Red, Yellow, and Blue," but just used a regular red paint and ruined it. James would appreciate I, that. No, yeah, I was just gonna say, like, anyone who who thinks that it is easy to reproduce paintings probably thinks it's very easy to cheat in the Boston Marathon, and will probably have just as much success. But that doesn't mean that Rosie Ruiz can't have success getting into the hall. Any of these guys, I think, could have some success getting into the hall. Here's my thinking about Jack Molinas. I'm, I'm torn in a couple ways, because there's, there's a huge what-if factor to him. And I think it goes even deeper than the fact that he only played a half season in the NBA. Bear with me on this. Not only did he have his whole career suspended and banned, but this is a guy that was so good that he could theoretically choose when to go on scoring runs or when to miss. Like you have to think going back at his old statistics that he could have been doing even better than those. And it's to me, it's like how actors talk about it being really difficult 
to intentionally do bad acting how like hard it is for an actor to like on a comedy show appear to be like John Hamm being stupid in 30 Rock that is more difficult than it looks and there's something about Jack Molinas having to intentionally be a worse basketball player than he could have been in order to fuel his true passion which was clearly gambling if he had devoted himself to basketball how good could he have been along those lines Hubie Brown Hall of Fame coach said that Jack was flat out one of the best players ever. Not just of his era, no, he was one of the best ever. And I think it's probably because he got into gambling so early when he was also developing his basketball skills. Do you think it was a motivating factor? No, but it gave him the ability, he developed the ability to turn it on and off because that's how he started playing basketball. Like, So you're, okay, so your official stance is, I just want to make this clear. If you start gambling as a younger child, it will make you better at basketball. What I'm saying is, it wasn't like he was good first. It is easier to learn how to be a bad basketball player, intentionally bad basketball player from a young age, than it is to be a great basketball player and then try to lose in a way that looks natural. He got, because he developed his skills in, at cheating at the same time as his skills at basketball, he was able to hide it really well. At what age do we think it started for Jack? Like, do you think he was like on the playground in fourth grade saying like, so I got my team minus three and a half. You want to get some skin in it? Like, the earliest okay, age we know was, of him gambling is 12 years old. That and is he the was earliest. born in 1931, right? Yes, yeah, so 1943 is the earliest we know of him gambling. So this motherfucker in the middle of World War II, as a 12-year-old, as Hustling a with Jewish the mob. 12-year-old kid in Brooklyn, it like we are currently fighting Hitler. He's just like, but I could also be betting on basketball. Yes. It's make, so good. It's really good. I could make horrible jokes, and I'm not going to. <laughs> Let's make horrible jokes about Dick Higgum, too. Because the other thing against Jack Molinas, and the reason I can't go to Jack Molinas quite yet, is... I'm, he's the Mephistopheles, as you said, of cheating at basketball. Like, he might be too good. He truly that's might be... such a good name, though. That's Too, a, too good. Like, that's... Anytime you can bring up Faust, in like, he is this. Like, we have to reference Faust to say what he did. Evil basketball Bernie Sanders. Okay, but Dick Higgum <laughs> is, is hanging in there as well. I love that he comes from this... He has a backstory that interests me personally because his dad is this like upright, moral, standing figure. And he says, fuck that. Like, I can make way more money just cheating all the time from multiple angles in this sport. The son betrays the father. It's a tale as old as time. And who knows what would have happened if his father did not pass away so, I guess, average for that time like they didn't they didn't live that long back then but like 45 <laughs> still like young enough you're expecting to get a little more time with your dad 45 i'm trying to figure out like would his dad have been alive yeah his dad's like totally there for uh it's part of his baseball career yeah that's kind of man do you think he knew do you think it killed his dad on his deathbed to find out that his son was a dirty cheater well, so it's either that or the only reason he wasn't cheating was because his dad was still around. And once he wasn't, he was like, well, fuck that, I got to go get the bag. Maybe that was it. Well, do, we don't need to go any further into this. It is uh, clearly, you know, a very 
dramatic tension to have between father and son. So, you know, I don't want to haul all the time. How are you guys feeling as we, we talk through this? I really like Jack Molinas, but he's also a, he's just a bad person. And I want to reward myself for what I think is a good story, but I don't want to reward Jack Molinas. And that, that hurts me, which means I, I have to go somewhere else. Right, we need we need to we need to divorce ourselves from our guys in these discussions, and that's always tough. I mean, here's the thing: I love the Rosie Ruiz story, but there is a deep part of me that does not want to let a person into the hall who did not actually compete in their alleged sport. Like Jack Malone's piece of shit. He played basketball. Dick Higgum. Morally gray, man. I'm not going to say straight up piece of shit, but he did some bad things. But he actually played the sport and he actually officiated the sport. Rosie Ruiz was born on third and thought she had a triple to keep with a baseball analogy. Yeah, never ran a professional marathon. We have absolutely no records of her running a like sanctioned major marathon. In fact, she never ran at all. She never got past walking speed once in her life. Well, so the thing is, like, to that point, James, if we had even, like, one record of, like, oh, yeah, in 1977, she actually legitimately ran a marathon and she did it in, like, five hours, I'd be like, you know what? Respect. Here's what I'll say, having read a little bit more about Rosie Ruiz. I'll admit, I did not go deep enough as to get a book from freelibrary.com. Shame on me. So I don't know if she ever has any official finishes. She had been running for a year and a half prior to that. She was not running very hard. I do not think she could run a marathon fast. If she said that her estimated finish time was four hours, 10 minutes, I believe that at some point in Rosie Ruiz's life, she ran like 20 miles. (laughs) That's what I'm going to give Rosie Ruiz. I feel very certain I would take the over on the number of miles that Rosie Ruiz has ever run consecutively in her life at 20.5 i'll still take the over there can someone get me on the call with one of your guys to get some action on that you don't think she ran one mile and then just timed multiplied it by 26 and said oh that sounds about right no no i i bet that she like really thought she could do a marathon but never actually did it that's kind of the vibe that i got from all of the like various i'm building this from very little she has not given a lot of interviews not a lot of people have talked to rosie ruiz in the media so there isn't a lot to like go for i'm definitely extrapolating and i want to make that clear but the vibe i get from her is she thinks she could run a marathon has never actually run a marathon it's the thought that counts except for (laughs) when it comes to actually running a marathon Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. And we will, I'm sure, bring up horseshoes someday on here, but marathon is neither of those. She she competed, but she didn't complete her competition. Right. Or so, she I mean, only guess, completed but never started. So then that brings us to do we want to honor the person that like I here I, I would love to see like a Jack Malinas, Tim Donahue, like imagine that those two teamed up the shit that they could have rigged together. <laughs> That would have been pretty good, actually. Lakers would have won five in a row. I love that Molinas has, like, the random crossing with Paul Tagliabue that sets NFL policy for decades. I also, though, like that Dick Higgum gets to continue with Diaz's ongoing Kurt Flood blood feud, because now he gets to say, ha, I have the actual first free agent in the hall. 
Yes, I what? did just pull up an article that describes Donahue as the most dishonest person in NBA history since Jack Molinas. I mean, when you're the standard for corrupt pieces of shit in your sport. <laughs> Honestly, that was a very good pull for last minute research. That was pretty convincing that he <laughs> is immediately used as the illustrative example. But then do we get to too good to guy territory where he is too well known. Like, well, had you heard of him before today? I had not. That is fair. God, this is going to come down <laughs> to me, isn't it? Ah, fuck. Are you going to jack your dick, James? I'm now reading a Harvard <laughs> Journal of Sports and Entertainment Law from Harvard Law School about the legal evolution of sports betting that talks about Jack Molinas and Tim Donahue. Okay, you know what? Here's the deciding factor. In a way to honor Rosie Ruiz and the Harvard students that busted her initially <laughs> with that Boston Marathon, I think that Harvard Law poll might have just put Xavier over the edge. This is an agonizing decision because I do think that he is he is towing that Babe Zaharias horizon so very much. And yet I I do think that we gotta give Xavier a repeat with Jack Molinas. Look, I, I, I concede the point and I'm I'm certainly willing to acknowledge that any man that is able to essentially have a stable. Uh, and that's really what our, our inductee this week was able to accomplish. He had a stable of teams working at his bidding, a, a, a true boss of illegal gambling within the sport of basketball. He lived fast. He died hard. And now we are thrilled to acknowledge and to welcome into our illustrious hall the greatest piece of shit in the history of a league full of giant pieces of shit, Jack Molinas. Welcome to the Hall of Guy. I wonder how much money he would have bet on being inducted into this hall if he knew about it. I'm sure he's looking it up at us right now and counting all of his winnings. Diaz, thank you for doing those honors. Thank you also for giving us our title name, Live Fast, Die Hard, Bad Guys Do It Right. Uh, <laughs> what an incredibly difficult decision we've had there but you know what maybe this is good news that yet again season six will now have us take a break before our next normal discussion of guys we've got another one of us on the road once again so we cannot fully convene the guy Butel next week but we have once again managed to stave off the retribution for our absence by getting another guest appearance so that'll be next week in the meantime thank you as always to the programmers behind producer craig bott our musical director, Don Ham, for our lovely theme music, and to you, dear listener. Hey, if you like what you're listening to, tell someone about the show. Word of mouth is the only sponsor that we have the budget for. So uh, tell someone they can find absolutely everything at bit.ly slash remember that guy. All one word, all lowercase. Until next week, I have been James. I've been the very special guest, Xavier. And I'm Diaz. And as baseball fans across the world heard and the shot heard around the world, the Giants win the pennant. The Giants win the pennant. <laughs> so we're doing the Dynasty football meeting in AC on Saturday. Mm-hmm. And, and they're using is- the number one overall pick on Victor Weminyama? 
I wish. I wish. <laughs> I, go, I I have no picks because I went all in for a championship, which I didn't win. But you won a third place championship. No, Xavier won third place championship. Oh, okay. I apologize. That was the one where I was winning, and then the Bills game happened and never resumed. So we just decided to well, call it. I should have pushed harder for you to let me win it because I have Demar Hamlin on the line. <laughs> Demar Hamlin was getting at least three pick sixes if we played that game. <laughs> um, 